If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the November 16th, 2020 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. With all the rumors surrounding the rise of Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett and possible challenges to marriage equality, we wondered... How did we get where we are? So tonight's IMRU is devoted primarily to revisiting a single interview. Roberta Kaplan successfully argued before the Supreme Court on behalf of LGBT rights activist Edith Windsor in United States v. Windsor, a landmark decision that invalidated a section of the 1996 Defense of Marriage Act, DOMA, and required the federal government to recognize same-sex marriages. In 2015, IMRU reporter and attorney, Abby Dees, sat down with Kaplan to discuss the case and her book, Then Comes Marriage, How Two Women Fought For and Won Equal Dignity for All. Two years ago, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a key section of the Defense of Marriage Act, also known as DOMA, in the case United States v. Windsor. This momentous ruling paved the way for this year's landmark ruling that ended legal marriage discrimination once and for all in the U.S. My guest is Roberta Kaplan, who represented the plaintiff in that case, Edie Windsor. Roberta has just written a book about the case, Edie and her late partner, Thea Spire, and her own personal journey as a civil rights crusader. It's called, of course, Then Comes Marriage. Welcome, Roberta Kaplan. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. When you think back to U.S. v. Windsor and your work on that. What's the first thing that pops to your mind? Joy. Why? Because what we accomplished both in the Windsor case and as a result of the Windsor case is something that would have been completely inconceivable to me. It would have been fantasy to me, not only when I was a kid growing up or when I was a college student or a law student, but even as a young lawyer. The idea back in 1991 that gay people would be equal under the law to everyone else and marriage and essentially everything else is something that I I never thought would happen in my lifetime. One of the things I really love about the book is that it is also your coming out journey. And it very much ties to this, here you were, 1991. You actually saw, as a therapist, and you talk about this in the book, Thea Spire, who is the late partner of the plaintiff in the case. And you were dealing with coming out issues and Would you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, look, I mean, I think, first of all, this is probably, it's not probably, it is 
the most rapid civil rights achievement that this country has ever experienced. No group in American history, no minority group, has had the kind of success that LGBT people have as quickly as we have in the last several years. That's a great thing, and it's great today that it's the new normal, and no one really bats an eye about people being gay or people being in relationships or people being gay and married. But because of that, I think it's easy to forget the fact that that very much was not true only several years ago. And I don't, again, you don't have to go back to 1991. You can go back to 2004. So I thought it was important to, to try to explain this incredibly dramatic change. I think you needed to explain where we came from and how much the world has changed. And I think a lot of people will relate to your own journey. It is very much a universal journey for a lot of us in this community. Could you give me a brief overview of the facts of the case? Sure. So my client, Edie Windsor, who's 86 and doing great, I'm going to tell you her life story because that really is the facts of the case. She grew up in Philadelphia during the Depression. Her family lost their home and their business during the Depression. She went to college at Temple University. And even though she says... She fell in love with a woman in college, and she realized she was a lesbian. The idea back then, this was the 50s, that you could ever have a life with another woman, putting aside Patricia Highsmith novels and the movie Carol, the idea that that could ever happen was inconceivable to her. So she had been engaged to a guy. She broke off the engagement in college because of this woman. She then, after college, got reengaged to the guy. That's how she gets the name Windsor. She was married. Needless to say, the marriage did not last very long. She basically said to her husband, she basically came out to him and said, you deserve to be loved the way you deserve to be loved, Mm -hmm. and I need something else. And like so many people, myself included, a few decades later, she moved to New York City in order to be gay. Now, interestingly, the biggest issue for Edie upon moving to New York City was not being gay. Because anyone who was middle class or up and gay at that point in time had to be completely closeted. You could not live your life otherwise. If you were going to be out, you really were putting yourself at the margins of society, and that's not what most people did. So the bigger problem she had was being a woman because it had always occurred to her or she'd always assumed that she'd get married and that her husband would support her. That's what women did back then. And now she needed to get a job. So she had been good, apparently, at algebra in high school. So she decided to enter the mathematics graduate program at NYU. She became one of the earliest software programmers in the country. She got a job to work her way through grad school, working on what was then the biggest computer in the world called the UNIVAC computer, which was operated by the Atomic Energy Commission. In order to keep that job, she needed, and no pun intended here, but she needed Q security clearance. (laughs) One day she got a letter from the FBI saying, we don't think you need a lawyer yet, but we'd like to talk to you. She was petrified, and she was right to be petrified because back then it was a felony. It was a crime for anyone who was gay or lesbian to have any employment with the federal government whatsoever. And back then we're talking the 50s. This is the late 50s, and you couldn't even work for a company that had contracts with the government like IBM, as Edie later did, that was also illegal. So she did a little research under New York law. It turned out she was right. And that back then, according to her research, for a lesbian as opposed to a gay man, and the law was different, for a lesbian, what was illegal was to dress as a man. So Edie shows up at her FBI interview in high heels uh, frilly dress and crinolines. I just have to interrupt and say Edie is to this day a very stylish femme. She is. It's not hard to imagine <laughs> Edie in that outfit. I, I completely agree with that. Uh, hoping, as she said, to throw the FBI off their game. 
fortunately for Edie, and fortunately I would say for the rest of this country and for U.S. history, the FBI only really cared about whether her sister had friends who were in the teachers union and who were communists, and they never asked her whether she was a lesbian. But imagine that today. I mean, especially for people younger than me, the idea that you could be called in, asked whether you were gay, knowing that if you told the truth, and Edie was determined to tell the truth, that that would not only be the end of your job, but the end of your career. Yeah, It's almost inconceivable today. So time went on. She got a job at IBM, as I mentioned. She did extremely well there. She had a fellowship at Harvard and then came back to New York. Upon coming back to New York, one night she called a friend. She was living on the Upper West Side, and she said she was the only person in her building who ever wore jeans. She decided to call a friend and said, kind of desperate, saying, I'm so lonely. I don't know any lesbians. Can you please take me where the lesbians go? And her friend took her to a restaurant in the village, then operated by Elaine Kaufman, who who went on to start Elaine's, which on Friday nights, apparently, lesbians went to. And at the restaurant, some friends brought over a woman by the name of Thea Spire to her table. As far as Edie was concerned, it was love at first sight. Not the same for Thea. Thea had a series of girlfriends over the next two years, and Edie kept kind of waiting. She finally heard the news that Thea was single and was going out to the Hamptons for a weekend. And so she begged some people who really weren't even friends. They were acquaintances. She called them up and said, would you mind if I come and stay at your your house for the weekend? (laughs) They agreed. Thea ended up showing late, and Edie was incredibly frustrated. It's proof that lesbian drama has always been with us. Exactly the right. Exactly right. And that was the beginning. And then they went on to spend the next 40 years of their lives together. A couple years after that, Thea pulled over by the side of the road and pulled out a circular diamond pin and said to Edie, this was 1967, will you marry me? The reason she had a pin instead of a ring is because Edie had said to her, I can't show up with a diamond ring at work because everyone will want to know who's the lucky guy and I can't answer that question. To me, the idea that two women in 1967 we're thinking this way. Could even have the thought enter their heads that they could get engaged is a fact that I never, it's amazing. I mean, Stonewall happened two years later. And then the truly heroic part of their lives is what happened for the next 40 years because Thea was diagnosed with a really terrible form of multiple sclerosis. And over time, she lost the use of her legs and then her arms. And by the end time she died, she was quadriplegic. Edie has said that that diagnosis happened to both of them. They had a refrigerator magnet that said, seize joy. And they really tried to live that. And the day that Thea died, she actually had patients she was supposed to see. So they really made sure as little in their life changed as possible. And then they couldn't get married. They wanted to get married. And Edie had said to Thea, let's go to Canada. They couldn't get married in New York. That's my fault because I lost the New York marriage I'm case. Sorry about that. Yeah, I but think I kind of paid them back. You but. handled that case admirably. And so one day Thea got a very bad diagnosis from the doctors that said that she didn't really have much more time to live. And even though in the past she'd been reluctant to travel because if you're paralyzed, traveling is really, really hard. She woke up the next morning and she said to Edie, do you still want to get married? Edie said, I do. And they went to Toronto with four best women and two best men someone who could disassemble and reassemble the wheelchair. They got married at the Toronto Airport Hilton so they could wheel the wheelchair directly to the room. Sadly, a couple years later, Thea passed away. And that's how the case really started. That was a very long preamble. I'm sorry. Uh, But it's a great story. I don't get tired of it. That's how the case really started because upon Thea's death, Edie realized that she had to pay essentially a tax on being gay, that all the property that they had accumulated over their many years together It was as if Edie had inherited it from a stranger. So she got this whopping $350,000 estate tax bill. She paid it. You have to do that if you want to fight it. So she paid the bill. And then she went looking for a lawyer. 
And that's how the case started. Really, the crux of the case was at least Section 3 of DOMA said that the federal government would not recognize these relationships as a matter of course. And there was nothing that she could do. DOMA's an extraordinary law in a lot of ways, or was an extraordinary law in a lot of ways. You know, it was passed in 1996 at a time when there really, I mean, no gay couples were getting married anywhere. (laughs) There was some kind of faint hint of it maybe happening in Hawaii, but it really wasn't a realistic prospect anywhere. And so Congress passed a law that says even though there's no chance of gay couples getting married and there's no realistic prospect of it happening anytime soon, we're going to pass a law so that if it ever does happen, those marriages are invalid. It's an extraordinary statute. I mean, it had no impact when it was passed. No, it was a complete, we're just, you know, locking the doors just in case. Exactly. We just want to treat gay people as different just because they're gay. And that legislative history really came back to destroy it. A key part of your argument was that it was so clearly passed out of fear and what's legally called animus. Yeah, exactly right. It's not like Congress in 1996 did studies to figure out, you know, what would be bad or good policy. It's not like they looked at the tax implications or the Social Security implications or anything like that. And they say in the House report they're doing it based on moral disapproval of homosexuality. And uh, in Justice Kennedy's constitutional jurisprudence, that's a constitutional no-no. You can't pass a bill just because yeah, don't people like are people. different. Yeah. Correct. Since this year's big case, Obergefell v. Hodges, and I'm never sure that I pronounce that correctly, since that came down, which ended marriage discrimination, at least legal marriage discrimination, I sometimes think that Windsor's gotten a little forgotten. And I also don't think that this case would have happened if Windsor hadn't gone the way that you took it. What do you think the legacy of Windsor should be, or how should history remember Windsor? We live in an age today with Instagram and Twitter and everything. People focus on whatever the newest thing is. So the most recent case is the Obergefell case, and it surely was very important in establishing the equal protection of gays under the Constitution. What was amazing is Windsor got the decision in June 2013, And what happened over the next two years was truly extraordinary. There has never been a tidal wave of court cases like this, again, ever in U.S. history, where case after case after case, uh, judges in states like Utah and Oklahoma and Virginia all agreeing that what Windsor meant is that gay people have to be treated equally under the law and equally in marriage. What's fascinating about that is that the actual case did not strike down DOMA Entirely. It just addressed the federal issue of DOMA. Am I reading that correctly? Yeah, there was an, there's another provision of DOMA that basically says if a gay person gets married in one state, you don't have to recognize the marriage in another state. It essentially was the same issue as the right to marry nationwide. We didn't challenge it strategically, I mean, intentionally in A.D. Windsor's case, because we didn't think the court was ready to go to marriage 50 states nationwide. So what Windsor basically says, it's more than just striking down the section of DOMA. It basically says that gay people have equal dignity. Justice Kennedy uses the word dignity 11 times in 23 pages in the Windsor. He says over and over and over again that gay people have dignity just like everyone else and that that dignity needs to be respected under the law. And that's the principle that led to Obergefell, which basically says the exact same thing. In fact, in Obergefell, he actually uses the phrase equal dignity. Which, of course, a lot of people on the right are just horrified by because they think that that's not a strict reading of the Constitution. Well, you know, obviously I disagree with that. I mean, if you look at major Supreme Court cases, Brown is the perfect example of this. The court in Brown does not go into detail 
about the policy reasons or the rationales or the constitutional technicalities for why separate but equal was unconstitutional. The court basically assumes in Brown that African Americans are equal to white people and that because they're equal to white people, they can't have separate facilities. And we just start there. In Windsor's the same thing. Like, you know, I get what Justice Kennedy was doing. It makes a lot of sense. You don't have to write 15 pages in today's world to explain that gay people are the same as everyone else. Everyone accepts that. And once you accept that, then the constitutional analysis is easy, simple. Because once you assume one group of people is equal, then they have to be treated equally under the law. That's what our Constitution says. I am fascinated by how you got to this case, because you're a partner at Paul Weiss, very noted law firm, and you are not an attorney with Lambda or ACLU or gay and lesbian advocates and defenders. It's unusual that a private attorney takes the helm on a case like this. You got also some pushback for that. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I've been doing this work for many years. So I had done the New York marriage case with the ACLU and Lambda, who had the companion case back in 2004 and 2006. So I I had a record on this working with those groups. But the real reason it happened, frankly, is because Edie went to the groups first and they turned her down. Because they turned her down and because, to use her words, she felt indignant about the injustice that DOMA caused, she went around looking for a lawyer and she happened to have a friend who was a friend of mine, and that's how the connection was made. And and I didn't have any qualms. I thought it was really, from the first second, I thought it was the perfect case. What was the pushback from some of the other organizations originally? I wasn't a party to the conversations that Edie had, obviously. She was told something like it wasn't the right time for the movement or something like that. You know, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because Mary Bonato at GLAAD had already started a case in Boston at this point in time. I suspect, because this I did hear later, that it had to do with the concern that Americans wouldn't get Edie's story because they would see her as kind of this privileged white lady who had a lot of money and had to pay a lot of money in estate taxes. It's not an issue that concerned me at all. I mean, I thought about it. I listened to what people had to say, but it wasn't an issue for me at all. I think, first of all, Edie's not that privileged. The estate tax was really because they bought an apartment in Manhattan in 1980, and like anyone who bought an apartment in Manhattan in 1980, it made a lot of money in terms of value, and that's why the estate tax was so high, number one. Number two, I think every American gets in their gut what it means to have to pay a tax that's unjust, a tax for being gay. That's part of our culture. We don't like to pay taxes anyway. Call me crazy, but I think our country was started based on a fight <laughs> about an unfair tax. I mean, I've been teaching you know, colonial history to my nine-year-old son, so I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. And the amount here was the, actually the perfect amount because it was a huge damage. It wasn't like just paying, you know, a $50 filing fee for bankruptcy court or, you know, a small additional amount of money. Not that that's not important. It is. But this was really a hit to the government. It's real gut. money. It's real money. And I think Americans all got that. And I know the justices got that. You made a comment in the book that conservatives can agree that – unfair taxes are wrong. Right. (laughs) And and, and then we added bonuses. I forgot this. The Republicans don't even like the estate tax. Yeah. This was an estate tax. And they think there should be no estate tax. So I was like, that's not bad either. I remember when I first learned about the case, I had the same thought process in my head. And I thought, oh, boy, this is a attractive white woman wearing pearls who has an estate tax issue. And really, only people with money have estate tax issues. 
And and I thought, gee, you know, is this really going to fly? And then the next thought that came to me immediately was, yeah, taxes, the great unifier. <laughs> exactly. And then there's the story. I mean, who look, there's one thing I know about life, which is no one knows what life has in store for you, right? No one knows that you, God forbid, you could wake up in two days and get a diagnosis of MS the way Thea did. The one thing, however, I think we all know is if that happens to us, we would really like to have a spouse like Edie Windsor at our side. Talk about a marriage in sickness and in health till death did they part. I mean, this was a marriage. And I knew that Americans would get that. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Or in Francis Ethel Gum, Judy Garland signed a film contract with MGM in 1935 at the age of 13. The rest is history. Her rendition of Over the Rainbow became a theme song to the gay community worldwide and placed number one in the Songs of the Century project. In 1939, a doll with Garland's likeness was manufactured by Ideal Novelty and Toy Company and was sold by Sears Roebuck and Company. Available in at least three sizes, it represented the actress as Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, complete with a blue and white gingham dress and glassine sleep eyes. Judy Garland promoted the sales of her doll, which at the time rivaled the Shirley Temple doll. In 1940, Ideal made another Judy Garland doll, wearing a long white gown from the film Strike Up the Band. This Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Glenn Lash, in Philadelphia. Hello, I'm Robbie Kaplan, the author of Then Comes Marriage, United States v. Windsor and the Defeat of Doma. And you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And you are listening to IMRU Radio. Now the conclusion of our interview. This is Abby Dees, and I'm talking with Roberta Kaplan, attorney and author of the book Then Comes Marriage, about her fight against DOMA. One of the themes in the book and one of the themes in the case, sort of your rallying cry, was it's all about Edie. Could you talk a little bit about what that means? Yeah, so I, I had a post-it, especially when we got to the Supreme Court, I had a post-it on my computer that said, borrowing from, I think it was George Stephanopoulos in the first Clinton campaign, said, it's all about Edie Stupid. You know, I think there were two reasons I had it up there. One was conscious and one was unconscious. The conscious reason was we thought from day one that if we could persuade Americans, if we could persuade judges, and ultimately if we got there, if we could persuade the justices of the Supreme Court, that the marriage that Edie and Thea had was the same as anyone else's marriage. Not that different than the marriage that Justice Ginsburg, for example, had. She lost her husband and she would understand. If we could persuade them of that, we would win the case. And that was the way to win the case. We didn't want it anymore to be an abstract fight between the right and the left, between pundits on MSNBC and Fox News. We want it to be about real people in their lives. That's what All About Edie was. If you look at our Supreme Court brief on the merits, it's called a red brief. The first eight pages are Edie and Thea's love story. There's not a lot of Supreme Court briefs that look like that. But again, we did it for a reason. So that's that. The second reason, which I don't think I realized until after the case, is I think I was trying to tell myself that even though I was a married lesbian who was being adversely impacted by DOMA, that my job as a lawyer, as is my job as a lawyer for any client, is to only think about Edie and to put my own situation and my own Michigas behind and aside and to only focus on Edie. And so I think I had it up there kind of to remind myself of that too. And we really did. We made every single decision on the case based on one criteria and one criteria only, which is will doing X or doing Y help Edie get her money back? 
And if that's how you make decisions in a case, it makes most of your decisions very easy. And that's tricky because the whole world is watching, and we all know that our marriages are riding on this. Yeah, yeah believe me. I, I get that. I mean, there were times, you know, when I felt like, you know, I had seven tons riding on my shoulders. But the case was all about Edie. Part of that is that's how you win cases. That's what our legal system's about. You're not supposed to be debating abstract principles in courts for the most part. A lot of judges don't like that. They have busy schedules, and they want cases about a real, what's called a case or controversy, a real issue. I remember when I argued in the Second Circuit, I said to the judge, I opened by saying, this case is about a widow who wants her money back. Simple as that. And it does seem to me, just reading, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, but looking at Kennedy's opinion in the end, I think he saw that. Oh, there's no question he did. I mean, he does a beautiful rendition of the facts of Edie and Thea's relationship in the opinion. Uh, there's no question that he did. Do you think that he gets tired of being kind of the target? We all knew how the court was going to go, except for Kennedy. And he wrote the opinion in Lawrence. He wrote the opinion in Windsor. And then he four. wrote the four. What was the four? Okay, Obergefell. Windsor and Obergefell. So he's written all... Look, I mean, he is unique yeah. on the Supreme Court at this point in American history because no justice has so dominated an area the way that he has dominated gay rights. He's written all four major gay rights decisions by the Supreme Court. And everybody's watching him for these cases. And everyone's watching him. I don't know him personally, so I can't tell you what goes on in his head, obviously. But I suspect he's pretty proud of it. Yeah, I think he's very proud of his legacy in that. I have a personal story about Kennedy. When I was in law school many years ago, Kennedy came to speak. I wasn't a fan of Kennedy's. These cases hadn't come down yet. He was a Reagan appointee, I believe. Yes. And he does have a conservative track record on the court in many respects. I went, I thought, well, it's a Supreme Court justice. What are you going to do? Go listen to the guy talk. And I came out of that with such a greater respect for the potential of the Constitution, the ideals of the Constitution. He impressed me tremendously and especially because I didn't really agree with him in a lot of these ways, but in just sort of standing up for these ideals, what you want the Supreme Court to be about. Thanks for telling me that story because I know it's a great story. And it doesn't surprise me. I mean, I, I again, I don't know him. I understand he's a religious Catholic. I actually think that his conception of dignity that comes out so much in these opinions is based on his view, a view that I share, that God created everyone in the image of God every single human being. And that means that every single human being has dignity and that that dignity needs to be respected. Yeah. I think one of the mistakes that our movement made is to cede religious arguments to the other side and to make it look like anyone who was religious was anti-gay. That's not true. A lot of people's religions teach them that gay people, their equal dignity as human beings needs to be respected. And there were a lot of front of the court briefs in Windsor from religious people and religious institutions, to your point exactly. Yeah, that was one of my major obsessions in the case. I really wanted a religious brief, not only from all the gay religious groups, which we've always had, I wanted from mainstream religious groups. So I wanted not the gay Catholics, I wanted the Catholics. I wanted not the gay Jews, I wanted the Jews. And we really got that. So you got a just avalanche of these briefs. Do you think that those make a difference? Yes, no question. It depends. Not all of them. There were 90 that were filed in the Windsor case, 45 on each side. The ones on the other side, the 45 on the other side, mostly all made the same kind of, I think, crazy religious argument that somehow, because my religion doesn't approve of gay people, that you're infringing upon my rights as a religious person or my beliefs to not have Edie have to pay a $350,000 state tax. It made no sense. And most of those briefs said that. And some of them used language 
that you saw again in Obergefell that was really, frankly, batty. There's a comparison that they like to make that people on our side are somehow the same as pro-slavery people in the South. To this day, I have not How you been figure able, that. Yeah, I really don't understand that analogy, but it's one of their favorite arguments. So their briefs on their side, I really, frankly, don't think had much of an impact because they were pretty crazy, most yeah. of them. And that was true in the Perry case, the property Perry case, case and was everything the same else. Group. Yeah. I mean, the first yeah. brief that we got on the other side was from the Westboro Baptist Church. And, <laughs> and we were like, to quote the character in my son's favorite movie, Beauty and the Beast, we were like, be my guest. You want to file an amicus brief on the other side? Feel free. Let's see your color, colors fly. On our <laughs> side, I immediately, when they took Windsor, asked Mary Bonato to come in and, and run that. And she did a great job of kind of corralling the various groups. And there were I think three briefs that were the most important, or maybe four. The first was the religious brief we've already talked about. The second, this was very important, was briefs about the military. After Don't Ask, Don't Tell had been repealed, in large part as the result of a good friend of mine, Jay Johnson, who was then the general counsel of the Pentagon and is now Secretary of Homeland Security, they had a real problem in the military because there were a lot of openly gay soldiers who, not surprisingly, were married because people go in the military tend to be people who want to get married. Because of DOMA, however, they were not married for purposes of federal law. And so it had already happened that from time to time, one of those soldiers got seriously injured or even killed. And the military leadership was not able to notify their spouse that that had happened. And in military culture, that is a big deal. You know, how you tell someone or their family that they've been injured or died is a big deal. And it was driving the Pentagon crazy, literally crazy, that they, it was such an indignity to these soldiers and to their honor. So that brief was very important. We had a brief from the military. Uh, frankly, a brief from business was very important. We had 271 businesses in Windsor. I think by the time it got to Obergefell, it was like 400-something. Even in Windsor, we had companies begging to be put on while we were taking the brief to the printer. I mean, it was already too late. You have to play to your audience. So it was important for the justices to see that this is a mainstream issue for many Americans. And those issues rise above politics. Exactly. You got a lot of backseat drivers as you were preparing this case. And one of the suggestions that you got was to de-gay the case. And you wisely said, to hell with that, or something more polite than that. Or maybe not. <laughs> I don't I'm know. Not gonna, I'm not going to repeat on, on the air what I said in response. <laughs> Tell me about that. Look, in any big case like this, there are a lot of people who have opinions. That's to be expected. And this was obviously a high-profile issue. Everyone knew that it was going to be hugely important for the community. So there were a lot of people focused on it, and that was to be expected. Um, and we got a lot of advice, and we would listen to all of it. We would accept some. We would reject some. But one piece of advice that we got that really stuck out was this idea that the way to win the case was to degay it, to rely instead on some earlier Supreme Court cases, one of which involves hippies. Uh, and one of which involved mentally disabled people, and that, that we should really rely on those precedents rather than talk so much about Edie being gay. And my view at the time was that, frankly, I don't think today's Supreme Court would necessarily decide the hippie case the same way today. I don't know about the mentally disabled people, but certainly the hippie case. And I didn't really want to compare gay people to people who are mentally disabled. I wasn't crazy about that analogy. And I thought, you know, as I said earlier, that the way to win the case is to persuade the court that we are like everyone else. We have the same kind of marriages, the same kind of relationships, the same kind of families as anyone else. And so not only did we not want to de-gay the case, we wanted to, like, re-gay the case. I mean, you know, a lot of our practice sessions, you know, the answers I gave, you know, every other word out of my mouth was gay, 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 gay. <laughs> and if you listen to the argument, I certainly said it. Actually, I want to ask you about heightened review. This case 
and the case that Obergefell and everything else did not address a heightened scrutiny for gay people. And just to clarify a little bit, courts generally refer to lawmakers, but when laws make distinctions between certain groups of people, such as on the basis of gender or race or religious point of view, courts will look more skeptically and put the burden on the government, which they don't normally do, to prove why that distinction is necessary. And that is called heightened scrutiny. And at the circuit court level, you actually did make the case that heightened scrutiny was warranted. And that was a successful argument for you. First time it had ever been held by a circuit court. When it's not heightened scrutiny, we call it rational basis. It's very rare that you win a case, a plaintiff wins a case like this without heightened scrutiny. But in fact, we have made all these headways without heightened scrutiny. Just talk about yeah, that. So it's, that's a complicated question. I mean, I don't think that what, and many people agree with me, that what Justice Kennedy was doing in Windsor and Obergefell is rational basis. It's certainly not the lowest form of rational basis that applies to basically economic ophthalmologists and optometrists, for example, which mm -hmm. is the most famous case out there. He wasn't doing that, clearly. In Windsor, I think he says more careful consideration was the expression he used than that kind of very low case. Uh, he clearly was doing something higher than rational basis. But you're absolutely right. He didn't call it. He didn't say I'm doing X. He didn't give it a name. And he didn't apply the formal heightened scrutiny standards. Although if you look at Obergefell in particular, he pretty much talks about all the heightened scrutiny standards. So he t And in Windsor, too, he talks about the fact that gay people have had a history of discrimination. He talks about the fact that Obviously, being gay has nothing to do with your ability to contribute to society. He talks about the fact that people shouldn't have to change being gay in order not to face discrimination. And he talks about the fact that gay people are essentially a political minority and certainly don't have the power on their own to get whatever they want through the legislature. So he talks about all the factors at various different points in the opinion, but he doesn't do a classic heightened scrutiny analysis where he says one, two, three, four, the way the Second Circuit did. One, two, three, four, this is why gay people get heightened scrutiny. Do you think that this case provides precedent for issues beyond discrimination against people because they're gay? Or... Oh, uh, Windsor and Obergefell together mean that no government, state, local, or federal, can discriminate against any gay person because they're gay. There's no question that that's what it means. So there's very little left in terms of government laws that discriminate against gay people. One of the last ones I'm now challenging in Mississippi, it's a law that prevents gay couples from adopting. I am extremely confident that we will win that case because there's just no question that that's what Windsor and Obergefell mean. Are there any arguments on the other side that have come along that have given you actually something to bite your teeth into? As a lawyer, I'm glad that the other side can't come up with good arguments to fight our equality. But sometimes you like a challenge. I haven't yeah. seen those and arguments. Well, it's interesting. Come along so the yet. Mississippi adoption case is very interesting. So we filed our case. We asked for an injunction. Two of our couples in Mississippi have kids. One have a 12-year-old boy, I think, and one has an 8-year-old girl. And the two mothers have raised these kids since birth, but only one is the legal parent. And that's obviously not acceptable. In fact, one of the women's in the National Guard, and she could be called off to duty any day. She's the legal parent, and it's not acceptable that she has to worry that if something happens to her, her spouse, her now married wife, is not the legal parent. So 
We filed the case. We asked for an injunction. It's very interesting what the state of Mississippi did in response. It really didn't make any arguments on the merits at all. Almost all the arguments that it makes in the case are kind of procedural arguments. They basically say, we don't have standing. You should have applied to adopt. No one knows how anyone would interpret the statute today. You should file in state court, yada, yada. You should apply an abstention doctrine, yada, 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 yada. But it's shocking the degree to which even in the state of Mississippi, they don't really want to fight this on the merits anymore. And where is that case in in its so we're, journey? So we're almost fully briefed, and we have an argument in Jackson, Mississippi on November 6th. What's next after this? Look, as I said, I think the governments can't discriminate anymore. I think that issue is now resolved. But the big open question out there is can private employers, in terms of accommodations, discriminate against gay people? I think the answer to that question is both legal and non-legal. The non-legal answer to it is that American businesses have no interest in doing so. I mean, it's terrible business for them. They don't want to have a store manager at some store somewhere, some Walmart or wherever, be able to make decisions about whether they're going to sell something to a family because they're gay or not. That's like a public relations nightmare for business. So you're seeing a lot of the strongest opposition to these bills, frankly, are coming from business. And I think that's the reason. But you're still going to have these one-offs. You're going to have these Kim Davises <laughs> who want their, what did Warhol say, two minutes of fame, 20 minutes? 15. 15 today. In today's world, it's probably longer with social media. You're going to see people like that. Again, I don't think we really have any tolerance for that. We're not going to go back to a world of Jim Crow for gay people. That's un-American at this point. But, you know, people like the attention. So Kim Davis is out there. In a way, I think she's been a huge gift to our movement. I'm delighted that Kim Davis did this. First of all, her legal arguments are ridiculous because she's a public servant and she can't pick and choose what parts of the Constitution she's going to follow. Two, when you look at the people supporting her, the rallies and stuff, and you see people with swastikas and white robes, it really conveys how hateful our opposition is. And I think that's a good thing. I think Americans have realized that. And then on top of that, here's the icing on the cake. She lies about a meeting with the Pope. Frankly, it doesn't get better than that. <laughs> there must be some special category of sin. It's nice uh, when you see them coming and you can, and they're yeah, really for loud. lying about the Pope. I mean, when that happened, I, you know, I was pretty happy about it. When you sat down to write your book, Then Comes Marriage, as you look back over all this, was there anything that sort of themes or understanding of what happened now that you didn't see at the time? Two things are important. One, I think I had forgotten or not realized how much the world changed even within the four years, really, that we litigated the case. We started, when we first met Edie in 2009, we got the decision in 2013. And even within those four years, I think in large part because of Edie, the world changed dramatically. We look back at some of the older emails in the case you know, we were seeing the world through a different lens. Even to me, I'm, you know, queen lesbian at this point. But even to me, that was surprising. And then if you go back even farther in history to the years when I was in college or law school, even I, again, am surprised. I've forgotten. It's a good thing I've forgotten. You, you know, it's, it's healthy and human and mentally healthy to forget. But I had forgotten how bad the world was. You know, I've forgotten how scared I was to come out, how right I was to be scared to come out what the world was like during the AIDS crisis when gay men were literally dying in droves and no one cared. We changed the world. I mean, we, we, this is a community that changed the world, and that, that's an incredible thing. My partner and I drank a toast to you and Edie last night. We were celebrating our seventh, oh, our seventh, seventh wedding anniversary. Toast. Thank you. And the bus that it was our anniversary, and the busboy just came up, and he was clearing our dishes. He, he whispered to us, happy anniversary. And 
it was such a wonderfully ordinary event. And I'm thinking back to the first time we celebrated our, our first anniversary. We had a completely different experience in an L.A. restaurant. And we just sort of stopped. And I thought about that I was going to be seeing you today and thought, that's what this is about. That's what you fought for. That's what Edie fought for. That is a couple months after the decision. My son, who was then seven, is obsessed with movies. And so we decided we were going to have a family movie night. And I said, I another Disney cartoon. I said, we're going to pick the movie and, you know, hopefully you'll like it. And so we picked My Fair Lady. He watched the whole movie and afterwards he said, I have two questions. And we said, okay. And he said, first of all, he said, I don't understand Henry Higgins. <laughs> He's like, he treated her so badly. Like, why would you do that? My wife and I could not have been prouder. We clearly are doing at least something right with our son. And then he's like, and the second question is, he said, I guess this is an old-fashioned movie. And we said, yeah, Jacob, it's old-fashioned. He said, yeah. He said, I guess this was made before men could marry men. <laughs> and exactly. We had the same. It hit us that in my son's view of the world, something is old-fashioned if it happened before men could marry men. I mean, that pretty much says it all. What a great marker. How is Edie doing? She's great. We should all do and look the way Edie does at the age of 86. She's pretty rocking. I hate to be sexist, but I did notice that she is quite an attractive stylist. She still looks fabulous. She goes woman. out a lot. We kind of have a little bit of conflict because I think she often doesn't rest as much as she should. <laughs> we spent a week together in P-Town this summer and had a great time, and she's really at this point a part of my family. Oh, that's wonderful. And you're working on this case in Mississippi. What's next for you? I don't know. I have no idea what lies ahead for me. Well, I want to keep doing what I'm doing. I love to be I wish you luck in whatever comes down the pike. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Robbie Kaplan, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. And congratulations again on your anniversary. Thank you. I've been talking with Roberta Kaplan, the lead attorney for the plaintiff Edie Windsor in U.S. v. Windsor, also the author of the book, Then Comes Marriage. You can find out more about the book and about what Roberta Kaplan's doing at her website, www.robbiekaplan, R-O-B-B-I-E-K-A-P-L-A-N.com. Thank you. Thank you so much. Meanwhile, a federal judge has overturned Mississippi's ban on allowing same-sex couples to adopt children. The U.S. District Judge Daniel Jordan ruled that the ban violated U.S. Constitution's Equal Protection Clause. He ordered John Davis, executive director of the Department of Human Services, to stop enforcing it. The couples were backed by the Campaign for Southern Equality and the Family Equality Council. In 2015, subsequent to Windsor, the Supreme Court ruling in Obersfell v. Hodges struck down all remaining state and federal laws against same-sex marriage across the United States. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this quick break. Over the Rainbow, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. The classic Academy Award-winning ballad, Over the Rainbow, has been a staple in the gay community's songbook for years. It was even sung by supporters of same-sex marriage in Minnesota's Statehouse before its Senate approved a marriage equality bill on May 13, 2013. Sometimes referred to as Somewhere Over the Rainbow, the music for the song was written by Harold Arlen with lyrics by E.Y. Harburg for the 1939 movie The Wizard of Oz. It was sung by actress Judy Garland, who played the part of Dorothy Gale in the movie. Garland first recorded the song on MGM's soundstage on October 7, 1938, using an arrangement by Murray Cutter. The song became her signature song for the next 30 years, until her death on June 22, 1969. 
The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Michael Simpson. Hello, I'm Barney Frank, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. There's still time for a last word. Today, that's an audio essay from Peter Dell. Alex met Eric on their first day of kindergarten. Coincidence and Mrs. Haynes' alphabetical seating arrangement made Alex and Eric, Ford and Forrest respectively, desk neighbors. They became best friends and stayed friends through Mrs. Haynes, Mrs. Williams, Mr. Oakley, and Mr. Burnsell. In the middle of third grade, when he felt he was old enough, Eric asked Alex to spend the night at his house. Alex, pleasantly surprised, quickly accepted after it had been cleared through the proper parental channels. The evening passed by quickly but uneventfully. Alex and Eric played video games, ate cheap double-handled popsicles, chased frogs, and burned Jiffy Pop. Eric's mother, a chronically polite woman, coordinated sleeping quarters. Eric would sleep on the floor, and Alex could sleep in Eric's usual bed. At first reluctant and confused, Eric agreed, and Mrs. Forrest left the two to sleep. As soon as Mrs. Forrest had left the room, Alex volunteered to switch with Eric. Eric insisted that his guest should have his bed. Alex was silent, searching for a solution. Uh, why don't you just sleep up here with me, he finally asked. The bed is big enough for both of us. Okay, replied Eric. Eric crawled up into the bed, laying down on top of the covers. No, silly, Alex protested. You have to sleep here under the covers with me. I won't bite you. Okay, Eric again replied. Somewhere in the back of his mind, he pictured his mother convulsing at the thought. Eric fumbled his way under the covers. Both he and Alex were dressed only in their two short pajama bottoms because of the unseasonably warm March night. As Eric got under the covers, Alex was waiting with open arms. This is how my mom sleeps with my dad, he explained. Eric lay with Alex's arms around him. They lay face to face with their foreheads touching. Kiss me, Eric said. What? Alex asked, not believing he had heard correctly. Kiss me. Boys don't kiss other boys. Boys kiss girls. Who says? Uh, I don't know, but I heard boys don't kiss boys. We're friends, right? So kiss me. My mom kisses my dad. They're friends. Alex blinked twice, trying to understand the strange information. Seeing nothing wrong with it, he closed his eyes and stuck his lips out in a puckering caricature of a kiss. Eric giggled. No, dummy, I've seen my sister do it. You gotta open your mouth when you kiss. It's called smooching. Keep your eyes closed, here. Eric eased forward and kissed Alex on the lips, gently at first. After a moment of awkwardness, he opened his eyes and pulled away. How'd it feel? Eric asked. I don't know, kind of weird not bad. And so the night passed by. Alex and Eric fell asleep, arm in arm. 
It had been a good night, and they slept soundly. The morning came with a rude wake-up call from the usually polite Mrs. Forrest. Wake up, both of you. Alex, you have to go, right now. I've already called your parents. Alex was unsure about anything except that familiar feeling that he was in trouble. Bad trouble. He pulled his pins and needles arm out from where it had been wedged by Eric's body. Eric and I need to talk about something important, she told Alex. Please just wait in the living room for your parents. Alex could hear ugly phrases floating out of the room. Phrases like, so embarrassed, how could you, and the worst, never again. All this time, Alex tried to imagine what it was that they had done that was so wrong. Alex expected a verbal lashing himself, but a few minutes later, Alex left alone, locking the door behind him. Safely in the car, Mrs. Ford turned to her son and put a hand maternally upon his head. So what was that all about? she asked, burning to know the answer. She had received a disturbing phone call from Mrs. Forrest ten minutes earlier, saying only that something had happened. I don't know, Mom. Mrs. Forrest totally flipped out this morning when she woke me and Eric up. She yelled at Eric for like five minutes. I think she was angry because he didn't sleep on the floor like he was supposed to. Where did he sleep? In his bed with me. She quickly pieced together what had happened. I think I understand why she was mad, sweetie, she started, searching like a diplomat for the right words. Do you see at all why she might be bad if you and Eric slept in the same bed? No, Mom, why? Well, do you remember what I told you about your Uncle Cliff and his roommate Jim? You mean that they're gay? Yeah, I remember. Well, Alex, some people think that kids shouldn't even know what gay people are or what gay people do. I think Mrs. Forrest is one of those people. She thinks that you sleeping with Eric might give him, I don't know, ideas about being gay. But Cliff and Jim have sex. Isn't that what makes them gay? I mean, me and Eric don't have sex. It's Eric and I, honey, and I know you didn't have sex. Mrs. Forrest probably just jumped to conclusions. She paused. Alex, just so you know, I'm not mad at you at all, okay? You're just kids, and it's okay if you want to sleep in the same bed as your friends. They drove home, talking about everything else. The topic of Elvira, the new puppy in the Ford household, was a popular one. When they arrived home, Mrs. Ford made the awkward but necessary phone call to Mrs. Forrest. The call went worse than she had hoped. I called Mrs. Forrest just now, she told Alex. She was pretty upset. About the sleeping thing? Yeah, about that. I have some bad news too, honey. She just wants you and Eric to see each other at school. Then, when she's ready, it might be okay for you guys to see each other after school and on the weekends. But Mom, that's so unfair. I know, Alex, but it was the best I could do. She's a very strange woman. Her views are very different from mine. Alex trudged to his room. This new banishment would be torture. Alex thought of his friend across town and knew it could only be worse for him. Monday slugged around. On his return to school, Alex saw Eric on the playground and ran across the field to greet him. Hey, Eric, Alex shouted. Hi, Alex, Eric droned. 
Sorry about the other night. He would not meet his friend's eyes. No problem. My mom told me why your mom flipped out so bad. Seemed pretty stupid to me. Yeah, I guess so. My mom can be kind of weird. She says you can't come over anymore. My mom told me. But we can still play at school, right? Sure, if you wanna. Of course, dummy. Wanna race? They both took off running. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email volunteer at imruradio.org. And as a reminder, We're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by the station. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. Good night.